You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. This is Pharmacy Crossroads with your host, community pharmacy business veteran, the road trip guy, Bruce Neeland. Community pharmacy is at a crossroads. Pharmacy owners across the country are evolving their pharmacy businesses and making a bigger impact on their communities. Bruce talks with the most innovative community pharmacy owners, pharmacy industry experts, and people who are passionate about the business of pharmacy and its impact on community healthcare. Pharmacy Crossroads is a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. And now, here's our host, Bruce Neeland. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Pharmacy Crossroads. My name is Bruce Neeland, and I get to be your host. As usual, today I have two remarkable guests. We're going to be focusing on a topic of interest to every pharmacist, but particularly to those in community pharmacy who have to manage a profit and loss statement and uh, and manage a whole crew. So uh, today I have with me Rebecca Sneed, um, referred to as Becky most affectionately in the industry. She's the executive director of an association that is more important than you could imagine, which I suspect many of you have not heard of. It's called the National Alliance of State Pharmacy Associations, or NASPA. And as her partner in crime or partner in conversation today, we've invited Garth Reynolds, who is the executive director of the Illinois Pharmacist Association and also the president of NASPA this year. So ladies first, Becky, can you tell us just a little bit more about yourself and then ask Garth to introduce himself? Absolutely. I am a pharmacist by training, um, had graduated from the Medical College of Virginia, which is now referred to as Virginia Commonwealth University under that broad umbrella. Uh, practice in community pharmacy primarily focused around senior care for the first course of my professional career, then was honored to serve as the executive director of the Virginia Pharmacist Association. And it's hard to believe, but almost the last 20 years have served as the um, executive vice president of the National Alliance of State Pharmacy Associations. I um, grew up in a very, very small rural town, um, about 30 minutes outside of the town that had one stoplight and a, and a part-time part-time um, physician that worked there. So the pharmacy really was the, the point of triaging care for the community. And that background really has uh, stayed with me and is critically important to me as I look at the future role of pharmacists and our opportunities to really affect public health and our communities. Um, something fun about me, and then I'll turn it over to Garth. Um, I once drove a NASCAR race car around the Richmond International Raceway. Um, that was a gift that was given to me and I was scared to death, but thrilled. And it's an experience. If you ever get the opportunity to drive a NASCAR race car, you should probably do it. I'm gonna turn it over to Garth. Thank you, Becky. Um, again, my name is Garth Reynolds. Um, I'm also a pharmacist and I went, I graduated from St. Louis College of Pharmacy, which is now the University of Health Sciences and Pharmacy in St. Louis. And um, 
I started out in uh, community pharmacy, very similar to uh, with Becky being from a small rural community of just 3000 um, people. My parents owned a pharmacy for just shy of 30 years. And I worked in the pharmacy um, from when I could start to give change back correctly. I was working the front end of the pharmacy and was glad to um, work alongside my parents in various roles all the way up to we uh, uh, transferred the business. Um, but I've also worked um, for some national chains and also um, spent a lot of my time um, in professional career with uh, Deerberg's Markets um, in St. Louis. They were a grocery store community-based pharmacy and had the pleasure of helping develop their um, immunization care uh, program, which is still in existence. Um, and then this, but all throughout that was working as a volunteer, as a member active within my state association, and fortunately had the opportunity to step up as the executive director. And I have had the um, pleasure of serving the pharmacists of Illinois and technicians of Illinois as their um, executive director since 2013, as we continue to battle the many issues that we have in trying to pr preserve pharmacy and advance patient care. And when it comes to when I'm not um, focused um, here at the in the Capitol, um, I do uh, like to get down to St. Louis and try to uh, still catch up on Cardinal games. And it was good to be able to um, go to a my first Cardinal game in over a year and a half um, um, last month. And um, and when I'm not doing that, I like to try to go over to Kansas City for um, sporting Kansas City soccer. Oh, wow. Soccer. Well, God bless you both. And again, thanks for being on the line today. The topic we're going to focus on is uh, an important one and a, and a heavy duty one. Uh, we want to talk about expanding the scope of practice of pharmacists. And, and Garth, you're the you're the lead off hitter here to, to go with the baseball uh, analogy. Um, kind of tell us what we mean with scope of practice and then dig in with some specific things that you're working on or have recently succeeded in doing in Illinois. I think right now what we're looking at in pharmacy is a huge advantage and really a, a culmination of many pharmacists hours upon hours, if not years upon years of advocacy in trying to get pharmacists recognized as providers. And, and Becky can expand upon the numerous successes that states uh, have had with um, advancing provider level where pharmacists are providing more direct patient care services and actually getting paid for it. And this year here in Illinois, um, after working on a, a, a various versions of this bill over the last four years, um, we have passed and uh, sitting on the governor's desk and we're, we're waiting his signature um, that pharmacists will be able to provide contraceptive co um, consultation and, and patient assessment and be able to be recognized on as a as a actual provider, not only on Medicaid, but also most importantly, on the commercial uh, medical insurance side as well. So it's it really takes us to that step of just being recognized as a healthcare provider to now that we can be paid and reimbursed for the professional care that we are providing. So we're very pleased here in Illinois to have accomplished that, uh, that, that with um, House Bill 135. And you got to be on pins and needles waiting for the signature. Let me ask a question as the non-pharmacist and official doofus in the industry. When when you pass this bill, when it gets signed, 
uh, my impression would be a person would be able to come in, sit down with a pharmacist, go through an assessment, and then the pharmacist would actually generate the prescription for the uh, birth control pills or birth control uh, 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 service. It, it, but do they? Does the pharmacist have the ability to be paid for the consult? Is there is there a code where they bill for the service, or is this a uh, uh, simply an opportunity to uh, generate a prescription and, and the revenue associated with that? Well, with the process that's been designed, it would be through a standing order. So a pharmacist would be working under the authority, delegate authority of a physician. And um, the pharmacist would do the same uh, patient assessment that a physician, a nurse practitioner, or a PA would provide in contraceptive education and assessment for the patient in helping make recommendations for the best product. And if it ends up being, let's say, oral hormonal tablets, the pharmacist would be able to generate a prescription based on that interaction, but the prescription not necessarily would have to be filled there. The patient um, would still have the, the right to have it filled with the pharmacist of their choice. Um, but so we'd be looking at two different services here. You have the prescription medication, traditional dispensing opportunity, but then the pharmacist would be um, billing the medical insurance side and the medical part of Medicaid. So that's a different component at a different arena that we're used to being in for the, the time that they were with the patient. And so there's going to be some interesting um, new avenues for pharmacists to learn when it comes to being credentialed as a uh, medical provider of patient care services. And it's something we're not used to. And, and, and it's going to, it's going to take some education on, on everyone's part as we start to do this. And there's a lot of good state models out there for us to be able to look upon um, because there's been a, a number, a, a good number of states that have been down this road ahead of us. Well, and again, well, that that's wonderful news. And and I, I love the, I love the, the nuance there that we practice what we preach. So that prescription can be filled anywhere. Uh, so we're giving patients freedom of choice on that, right? Absolutely. You got to have freedom of choice. And it's something that, you know, the PBMs could take a real good lesson from. <laughs> hey, let's take a quick break and listen to a message from our sponsor. This episode of the Pharmacy Crossroads is made possible by a grant from the Compliant Pharmacy Alliance Cooperative, commonly referred to as CPA. CPA invites you to plan ahead and register soon for the upcoming NCPA annual conference being held in Charlotte, North Carolina, October 9th through the 12th. CPA will be exhibiting at this important industry event. While you are there, they invite you to visit them in their booth and find out why more than 2,000 pharmacy locations have selected CPA to be their premier business partner. Not coming to the show? Then check them out online at www.compliantrx.com or contact them via email at sales at compliantrx.com. Now, back to our guest. So, Becky, uh, I mean, this issue has uh, been duplicated or uh, already done in a couple other states. What are you seeing on this front with provider status that uh, would be of interest to our listeners across the country? Thank you, Bruce. I think that um, Garth hit on it. It's it's really meeting the patient um, needs in our communities and looking at what those unmet needs are. We're seeing a tremendous expansion in what we call scope, which is our, our independent authority to do certain things and prescribe certain medications, as well as we are seeing an increasing number of states. I think we're up to 
eight now that have what we call payment parity, which means for our commercial plans, they have to treat a pharmacist like any other healthcare provider. And if the pharmacist is providing a service that they cover, they can't, they can't exclude a pharmacist just because we are pharmacists. Um, they have to include us in their networks, um, which is a whole different world for pharmacists billing on the medical side, but it's where we really need to be to be treated like every other healthcare provider. So we're seeing a tremendous amount of uptake in that pharmacist ability to provide direct patient care services and prescribe and, and products um, that will meet public health needs, such as Garth mentioned contraception. Um, there is a tremendous lack of access in certain areas to the ability to meet with healthcare providers to be able to prescribe contraception. Um, the other area is around HIV, PrEP and PEP as well as smoking cessation, as well as, of course, the decades that we've done immunization, as Garth indicated, that he implemented in his practice. And so we, we see those public health needs being addressed by our pharmacists um, right where the patient is. The number of even adolescents that don't have a medical home is huge. Um, it's almost 50%. And so you know, we, we can screen those individuals, refer them into care. So it's not that we're, we're working on an island as pharmacists or advocating that we're working on an island, but rather we're there to help that public health infrastructure and um, screen and refer patients into care when, when they need care that goes beyond what a pharmacist can do. Uh, that's great. So Garth, back to you. Scope of practice, anything else that um, you, you would want to raise that you've been working on? Well, we're continuing to look at different avenues like with the smoking cessation, but one avenue that we were able to get um, another um, expansion upon in this past General Assembly session was that we were able to um, lower the age of for pharmacist um, administering vaccines and actually technicians being able to administer vaccines down to age seven. We had been limited to age 10 for just influenza and Tdap, but um, now it's gonna be age seven for all vaccines. And, um, and that's kind of our first step of trying to help um, foundationally um, keep in place what has been done through these HHS emergency amendments during um, COVID. And so we'll continue to work on that. And we're having some great discussions on um, point of care testing, uh, PEP and PrEP, and also um, looking at um, coming back to that uh, immunization care and talking more about how pharmacists as the most accessible healthcare provider can be assisting with those um, needed pediatric vaccines for those three, three to six year olds. So you just, I mean, with vaccines, there's a, and this would be a, a, a legitimate question for me, the immunization information system, um, do you have one of those in Illinois? And can you talk just a little bit about what those are and how they aid pharmacists in their, their role as providers? Um, we do have a, a state registry called iCare, 
Um, and it's it, it, it's a web-based portal, and um, it does have its challenges. Um, and I think the biggest challenge for pharmacy comes on the technology side um, because it, it needs to have um, the transmissions done in HL7, which it can be a, a, a hurdle for some computer systems, but a lot of them have overcome that. But even with that, we are still not in a true bi-directional um, um, workflow with the registries. So the, it, the pharmacists are still just submitting whenever they process a prescription for an immunization that it's been administered into the system, um, but it's not querying those um, opportunities into the system for the pharmacist. So we still have to be very um, uh, additionally proactive in looking for those immunization opportunities. And I think a lot of pharmacists, um, it's something that we could definitely be stepping up upon because there are tremendous um, immunization opportunities coming through their door each and every day, which is um, money on the table that's um, being pat that's being left there. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a huge opportunity. And I think we we fail to remember, and, and this is where I, I will take a little pat on my back, but um, you know the the huge opportunity that immunization brought to pharmacy. You know, I I think it started 25 years or so ago. I I remember that when I was uh, responsible for uh, one of the wholesalers' uh, identity programs back in 2000. I was actually the first guy who uh, paid APHA to bring in uh, a team of people to to do a day long immunization uh, program as part of our annual meeting. And, and back then that was pretty innovative. So 20 years later, uh, I, I think that's a, a success for the profession that we, we fail to realize how, how well we've done with that. Um, and then boy, did it explode with COVID. And, and my take on COVID is, you know, with immunizations, it, if, if you're not there yet, you need to be now and you need to get there fast. Uh, any comments on that, Becky or, or Garth? Yeah, Bruce, I think you hit the nail on the head. And I think that that's the segue into all of the other services that pharmacists can provide. I think that with patients um, having that direct um contact with the pharmacist and the accessibility of the pharmacist, it leads right into other services. Um, Garth mentioned briefly point of care testing and test and treat, uh, particularly around flu and strep, are emerging as something that more and more states are adopting and encouraging their pharmacists to do. We still have to work on the payment process for that um, because that's you know, a lot of payers still don't recognize the pharmacists as the prescriber. And so working with the payer community and making sure that pharmacists are enrolled as a prescriber is something that we're working with all of the technology vendors to help facilitate. All of it started with immunizations. Um, and so it has really um, now, I think, tremendously fast forward it to an area in which pharmacists can step in and real, really provide that, that direct contact and access point for, for patients. But I, I do agree totally with you, Bruce. It would, you know, it started with us providing immunizations. It's just exponential since then. 
Yeah, and uh, I first of all, I love the alliteration test and treat. Uh, thanks for sharing that with me. I will I will replicate that in some stuff that I write. But you mentioned payment, and that's the elephant in the room. Uh, there's a lot of things that we can do, but can we afford to do them? Can we afford not to do them? And how do we get compensated? So let's spend a few minutes and kind of discuss reimbursement. And um, we know reimbursement for traditional dispensing services is down, and we know that many of the enhanced care things we do don't get reimbursed commercially. Um, Garth, what are you seeing happen in Illinois about reimbursement and, and what can what can pharmacists do to accelerate the adoption of that or the industry adoption of that? Well, I think there's a couple of different components there because, you know, as we said, we're starting to um, shift into a, a new era of pharmacist provided care. Um, and so, you know, we definitely have to make sure that we establish these roads um, appropriately. And Becky had talked about how a number of states have worked hard on payment parity for these patient care services that are being delivered. And um, we also uh, had passed this session and it, it did get signed um, for a telehealth, um, massive telehealth expansion package here in Illinois, that um, a part of that is a, is a parity that um, telehealth services would be paid at the same levels of in-person care. And uh, we had worked um, diligently a, a couple of years back to make sure that pharmacists were considered providers of telehealth services. Um, I know a lot of times we think about telepharmacy, but telepharmacy in a lot of states, there's a difference between te telepharmacy and telehealth don't always equal. And so, you know, we've always been very expansive here and have some very innovative telepharmacy practices. Um, but I think there's a lot of opportunity and some new avenues for telehealth. But on the other part of the reimbursement um, spectrum is we've got the continued strategic um, manipulation from the PBMs and actually from government entities. It's just like we, we continue to have this decades long battle about how hard is it to actually pay for a product? Um, any, no other industry that government um, is in a contract with has to put up with such a um, debysmal um, reimbursement structure. And especially when it is, and it's difficult because we're having to um, focus everything that we're doing for the patient with the drug utilization review, the medication consultation, the working with the physician and the team of, of, of all those different interactions and, and just having everything based on the reimbursement of the product. And, and that's, that's a bad business model. And hopefully as we continue to expand here over the next coming years, we can get, a, we can expand past that and actually being paid and compensated for the additional professional services that we add on top of um, the medication reimbursement manipulation structures that are in existence right now. But you ask one thing, Bruce, what can pharmacists be doing? And they need to engage. One thing I know that pharmacists were, were very hesitant at times to rock the boat. This is a time to tip the boat over because we are at a time where our profession, we're pushed in the corner basically. And we need to push back against the bully, which is the pharmacy benefit managers. And by doing that, we need to get our senators, our representatives, and our congressmen 
in our practices. It's great if you talk with them or you send an email or a tweet or a Facebook post, but you actually need to engage them. Get them behind your counter so they can see how you deliver care. They can see how you service your, you serve your community, but they can also see the devastating claims. They can see the losses in real time. That's one thing we have fortunate with pharmacy is that we have real-time processing. So you can see the losses real time and have them understand and show them your balance sheets and show them how the, these practices are having a devastating impact, especially with DIR, if you can get a congressman or a U.S. senator in, showing them how, how no other practice in industry would ever go back and, and accept any type of a reimbursement structure where six months down the line, we decide just to send you a non-appealable bill to take back a hundred to $200,000 for money you've already spent. Um, but yet it's considered to be normal practice for uh, pharmacy. Those kinds of meetings are critical. And I know that most pharmacists know it's something that they could do, but have you got any tactical steps about, I mean, how do they even start that? Do they just call the guy's local office and talk to somebody? Do they need to make a giant political contribution? What is the first step a pharmacy, a pharmacy owner? Uh, and I guess I, if possible, the chain guy, depending on the management structure, but what's the first step for getting one of those things set up? I think one of the first steps they need to do is make sure that they're one, that they're a member of their state association so that they're up to date on the most current advocacy strategy. And so in, in our case here in Illinois, it's Senate Bill 2008. And that's one thing that we're actually working on this summer. We're um, strategically going out to each of our senatorial districts and identifying pharmacies to be advocacy centers and, um, and working and actually setting up trainings for those pharmacists who may not have ever done a store visit before and help them feel comfortable with it and actually establish mentors that can even be there on site the day of the store visit. Because once you've gone through a store visit, it, it it's, it's a lot easier the second, the third, the fourth, the hundredth time. Right. And, and I think what a lot of, a lot of pharmacists sometimes feel is that there's this huge division between um, pharmacists and, and, and elected representatives and no, they're just wanting to know. And here in Illinois, as an example, we don't have a healthcare provider in the elected state house. So most of them are attorneys, so they don't understand healthcare. And, you know, there's that saying in, in politics, if you have to explain your issue for more than um, more, for more than 15 seconds, you're losing. Well, the problem is we usually need 15 minutes just to establish why we have them here today. Yeah. And so this is going to be a, a one of many series of meetings. Don't expect that you're going to be able to educate the entire scope of, of PBM abuses in one session. So to get to your the heart of your question, though, is once you've worked and connected with your state pharmacy association um, and you felt you feel comfortable with the materials and being able to advocate for yourself um, in your community, then you just engage with the local district office for your elected official. You don't have to make a contribution. Don't get into those muddy waters of trying to make a contribution, why they're there and all that stuff. Um, just reach out to them. You're, you're a constituent. You have a right to have their ear and, um, and just work with them and bring them into your practice. Most of them are very eager to learn and to know what is impacting their constituents. Because remember, all of this impacts the health of their voters. 
They're very concerned about that. So to really talk about how this is impacting their community and, and your community and and their voters. Well, there's there's a, at least a couple things I'd like to add. Uh, we sometimes uh, get discouraged thinking, how can we fight these big behemoths? They have all the money, and and I would concurred that they've got more money than anybody needs. But what we have that trumps that is relationships with people. So, you know, the, the pharmacy in the community is in a position to communicate with people who vote. And um, I, I think that, you know, the representatives recognize that. So, you know, tap into that. We're, we're not going to match the money but, um, you know, we can bring these elected officials and frankly, I still think there's some key regulators and even staff members who who could be helpful if we could get them into the pharmacy and show them what happens. The, the other piece that I would emphasize, and, and you certainly mentioned it, but uh, I, I think we need to be talking more about how the PBMs hurt people and hurt taxpayers. And, and I would encourage every pharmacist to be keeping careful track and document those instances when, uh, you know, a patient got a letter saying they had to go to another pharmacy and you, and, you know, it disrupted a treatment plan and put the patient at risk. Document those examples when it would have been cheaper to pay cash than to pay what the PBM uh, was, you know, was was charging and and clearly those cases where a, a critical drug was denied with nonsensical stuff and that nonsensical stuff that that I hear about just makes the hair on my head stand up it's just blatant uh blatant abuse and you know every pharmacy ought to be keeping a log book and examples of those kinds of things that they can show uh to their local representatives and and you know it gets touch dicey when they when they start taking a public position, but um, you know because the PBMs can you know abuse them back if they're there. But find allies in the community who you can share this information with, who will share it uh, with uh, with you being uh, blinded for lack of a better word. And I know in my town I've got three little independent pharmacies here in Prescott. And, you know, when when they share stuff with me, um, I share it with the newspaper. So, you know, we've had a couple articles in the newspaper documenting this kind of stuff that I wrote that, uh, you know, doesn't come back to, to those stores. So, you know, tap into vendors and and businessmen and others and, uh, you know, and get them to speak up as well. Does does that make sense? Would you endorse that approach? I must wholeheartedly endorse that because it's all about allyship and you need to build that in the media, whether it's with community groups, local chamber of commerces or local merchants associations. And those are very key because usually when we get to the state level chamber of commerces, they've somehow are um, blinded by the fables of the PBMs. And they think that the, that um, supporting um, proper reimbursement of healthcare and the um, and the um, the furnishing of pharmacist care services is is too high of a cost. And if you, and there's too much evidence in the contrary to show that if pharmacists are actually able to practice, we actually save money. And so you know you really have to we have to tell our story, but we all have to be telling our story so that they're hearing it from everywhere because we outnumber them. 
And if we can stand up together and be able to help tell our story, people will start to listen. And that's why we're having so much success now around the country is because people are telling their story and we need more people to be doing that. And it's not just independent community pharmacy owners. It needs to be chain pharmacists and long-term care pharmacists and health system pharmacists. This is an all pharmacist action alert. Yeah, it, it really is. So Becky, uh, we've mentioned a couple times state pharmacy associations. Um, why are they the critical first association for any pharmacist to belong to? Thank you, Bruce. And, um, you know, the National Alliance of State Pharmacy Associations was founded in 1927 because of that critical need. Um, and the need for state pharmacy associations to, to network with each other, learn from each other, and to try to accelerate the opportunities for the profession of pharmacy. No one else is going to look after the profession. No employer is going to look at for the profession as much as your professional organization does. And so the role that the state association plays in every state um, is to really be that pharmacist advocate and to make sure that they are not, you know, that they're focusing on opportunities for the profession of pharmacy to put patients first. And they spend a tremendous amount of resources and time and advocacy to try to make sure that the policymakers understand that and to make sure that pharmacists have the freedom to practice and provide that care to patients. And then, you know, certainly they fight for appropriate payment, whether it's payment for the drug product or payment for the pharmacy services that the pharmacists are providing. Um, without the state associations, we wouldn't have the payment parity provisions or the payment provisions under our state Medicaid agencies that many states have in place today. And so if we look to what the future of the profession, the future opportunities as the profession evolves, it's not going to happen unless you have a strong state association and the state associations can't do it without you. Um, you know, that's the, the challenge that we have is that many, many pharmacists do not get engaged and they're some of the things that they share are, you know, I really don't have time. Well, you know, being active is, is really, really important, but if you don't have time right now, at least pay your dues, at least stay informed. Um, and so we are very, very proud as an organization to be the organization that support all of the state pharmacy associations and try to help them help pharmacists, help patients. I, you know, and I mean, I, I, I'll get on my high horse here. Um, it's at the state level where the rubber meets the road. It's at the state level where your voice is much more valuable than at the federal level, although you need to do both. And the the little example that I invented in my life of, of, of about 30 years ago is I'm kind of a history buff and, and a fan of the notion of this great thing that helped us with the Revolutionary War, the Minutemen, and, and how these untrained guys could uh, could tackle some of the British soldiers and and start stuff and and you know that's a great uh, attitude in America. Hey, you know, uh, independence and individual action, you know, can kind of can kind of move things forward, and it can. 
but the reality is when Washington finally won the Revolutionary War, he beat Cornwallis in out near Williamsburg, where you live, Becky, with a conventional army that lined up and shot each other, and the French Navy that trapped the British soldiers in, and it was only by a collective action uh, of large numbers of people coming together that the battle was finally won. And the starting place for any pharmacist in this battle is to join their state association, and then they need to select a national association that meets their needs. I got an email today, and we're talking about how you uh, can influence your senators. You know, I got an email today from NCPA, the National Community Pharmacists Association, asking me to contact my state and and local representatives. And uh, you know, it was as simple as click here. It pulls up a screen. You put in your name and your address and your phone number, et cetera, and you click another button, and then they have a. Uh, templated email that you just click on and and you send it off to you know your your people and um, at the very least at the very very least you need to be doing that. Um, the other thing is I hear a lot of pharmacists complain about how the associations don't do anything, and all I would say if you're a complainer, join and fix it. So. Um, any parting shots? We're coming up on the end of our time. Uh, Garth, I'll come to you first and Becky to you, and then I'll make a closing comment and, and we'll be done for today. But Garth, any particular thing you want to say to uh, pharmacists all across the country? This is the time. If, uh, if you've not been active before, this is the time, not only to protect your practice site, but to protect your patients. So join your state association, get active, engage with your state and federal legislators. They need to understand your story. That sounds pretty eloquent, Becky. Yeah, I would like to reemphasize the statement that you made, Bruce, and that is, well, the associations don't do anything. Well, what you can do is to join and make a difference. I often refer to state pharmacy associations. I grew up in a very small rural town and you know, my mother was an avid quilter, putting pieces of fabrics of our previous clothes together so that we would have warmth and blanket. And I often think of our state associations as being that quilt, um, that because of the involvement of, of very diverse practitioners, all different practice types, we can come together and really, really create the future for the profession. But if you don't belong, if you're not one of those scraps and piece of that quilt, then you know, you're know you gonna have holes and you're not, the profession's not gonna be successful. You know, you're not gonna be quote unquote, able to keep warm. Um, and so just, just as Garth said, just now is the time more than ever before. Our profession is at a very critical point and we need you to get involved. Well, and and to that, I'm, I mean, I think the gods are with us. Um, uh, I mean, the, the COVID situation has been and is and will continue to be a major, major issue. But the silver lining is, is that pharmacists have finally become something that that regulators and and elected officials 
are are willing to rethink about um, and the efforts that were put forth by so many to help you know get people vaccinated for covid and t testing for covid i mean it brought us out of the shadows and and it did not focus on putting pills from big bottles into little bottles it focused on patient care and and it it opens the door so if you've been reluctant to call your local representative uh, you can do so now with a lot more confidence because they will have a more favorable opinion of what you do than they did a year ago so uh, it it is the time we have to we have to jump on this opportunity and move forward. Hey, listen, uh, Garth and Becky, uh, Becky, it's it's been an honor for me to know you for going on 18, 19 years. I I'm a a, a great fan, and and Garth, it's been great to meet you this morning, and I hope we get a chance to meet at the NCPA meeting in in Charlotte later this year. So for Pharmacy Crossroads. That's it for today. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you on the air sometime soon. Our thanks goes out to the Compliant Pharmacy Alliance Cooperative, or CPA, for sponsoring this episode of Pharmacy Crossroads. Their goal in doing so is to provide pharmacy owners, CPA members or not, with information they can use to be more successful. You can learn more about CPA by visiting their website at www.compliantrx.com. Once again, that is www.compliantrx.com. Thanks for listening to Pharmacy Crossroads. If you're interested in talking with Bruce, please contact the show. Visit pharmacycrossroads.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.